Namo Tassa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambhutasa Namo Tassa Bhagavatu Arahatu Sama Sambhutasa Umbudangdamang Sangang Namasami So this is the second full day of our retreat, and each of us can um, explore internally how has it been, what's happening, how, how are things going, what is my experience. And I know um, today, taking everyone into, the, into that large meadow and sitting underneath the cottonwoods, I was really uh, aware of just the impact of, of sense contact. And so walking through this field and listening to the sounds of the cars on either side and then having the cars disappear and then sitting underneath these cottonwood trees and hearing the sounds of people and the sounds of cars and motorcycles and then the sound of the wind. You know, I was just aware of the fact that it was just really agitating for me. I couldn't settle. And so it's just, it's noticing, noticeable to me that there's certain situations where it feels very peaceful and comfortable there's certain sounds. The sounds of crickets are something that for me is very soothing. The sound of birds is very soothing. The sounds of people's voices, the sounds of cars, the sounds of motorcycles is not soothing. And when the wind is too strong, there's a narrow bandwidth where the wind is peaceful and afterwards it's agitating. And so, you know, our systems are just very sensitive. And so different people are going to have different things that are calming and different things that are agitating. And so, you know, we could do a poll, how many people found it comforting and how many people found it agitating. And it isn't so much a question of whether, what the vote is, it's a question of just registering, you know, what it's like coming into this human form. So I disappeared and I went up to a place and was like, ah, oh, this feels perfect. You know, it was held between two rocks and it was in a place where the there, I didn't hear the sound of the wind. And even though the sound of the cars was really actually quite a bit stronger, because the wind wasn't strong, it was like, oh, my whole system could relax. So I came back down and we went and sat into the, into the, in front of the, of, the, of the cottonwood trees and then getting back and walking. And then all of the inflammation in my whole body flared up, you know, just from walking along the sand. And it's like, okay, well, this is what it's like being in a human form. Is 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 that, you know, there's times where everything feels peaceful and calm and pleasant, and there's times where even doing what I love the most, being out in the garden of the gods, causes the whole body system to activate. And so, you know, body was hurting, pain was hurting, feet were hurting, legs were hurting. You know, it's all hurting. So there's a, there's a place of peacefulness of having spent the day with friends in a way that I love, and yet the physical experience is uncomfortable. And then there's this, you know, this layer of, of dust, and then there's smells and the sweat and, you know, wanting to wash. And it's like, that's the reality of being in this human form, is, is, is that all of these things need care, you know, 
that we, we take care to stay clean and take the dust off and do what we can to release the inflammation and to eat and to drink and to go to the toilet. You know, this is the kind of like, you know, ground zero of having a human body. You know, this is what is, what is needed. And sometimes the pain flares up, and I don't know why. I have no idea why the pain flares up, you know. And it just flares up. So before the retreat started, the night before the retreat started, I was speaking to my mom. My mom's 85. And my mom has been really pretty incredibly healthy her whole life. She hasn't had chronic health issues. And so she kind of had it in her mind that when she was 85, everything was going to fall apart. But when it was 83, it started to fall apart, and she was completely beside herself. (laughs) Totally beside herself, you know, that it was falling apart and that she couldn't fix it. You know, she couldn't fix it. She couldn't fix it. And so she was determined to fix it. So, you know, 83, 85, two years, three years, two and a half, three years now. I've been very patient, you know, encouraging and supporting and all the rest of that. So this last conversation, I said, you know, Mom, I'm 53, and I've been dealing with chronic health issues for 28 years, Mom. 28, Mom, 28, 28. I've been dealing with them for 28 years, Mom. (laughs) And sometimes it hurts, and you can't fix it, you know? It's just like, you can't fix it. There isn't something that you can do to just make it better, you know? And she said, you know, maybe that's the problem. (laughs) I've been trying to fix it. Maybe it's not something you can fix. (laughs) So it's like gold stars for mom. (laughs) So we have this human body. And with the human body, we have a heart. And we feel things. And we're sensitive. And some things are really agitating, and some things are really peaceful. And we're in a context where we can work with it, you know. So it's interesting for me, because Ajahn Sumedho has been a teacher of mine for a long time. And his way of practicing was to work with what is. What is. Work with what is. It's this is what's arising, work with it. And Lin Tate, who's another forest meditation master who I actually have strong affinity with, his way of practicing is to find where your system feels at ease. Now, this is two totally different ways of practicing. Practicing with what is and find where your system feels at ease. Okay. So how do you practice? It depends. It depends on where we are at, what the circumstances is, and what kind of choices that we have. Okay, so yesterday and today, the invitation was I was going to take you on a walk to show you places that might be useful for you for the rest of the time we're here together so that you would have a sense of options of where to go. And so when we are going on a walk like that, we're here, we're in a process together, we're in a place together with a time commitment together. It's hard to completely change that context and go someplace different. But tomorrow, you'll be able to do what you want. And so you get to choose whether you like open meadow spaces or whether you like narrow canyon spaces. There's a water space across the highway if you want to go to the Red Rocks, you know, if you like water. 
And so it depends on the context we're in. Now, in England, we had very few monasteries where we could go to. And so the teachings of practice with what is was actually kind of really perfect teaching for an environment where we didn't have a lot of options. Lumpur-Tate is coming from Thailand, where there are many different practice environments where people could choose. And so in a context where you have lots of different options, then there's some value in beginning to learn how to tune in to where do you relax? Where do you feel the most at ease? Where do you feel the most grounded? Where do you feel the least anxious, the most confident? Where can you trust you can let go of feeling like you have to be in control? Where you can surrender into the process? Now, when you've got options, then that's a useful thing to consider. When you don't have options, it's really helpful to be able to practice with what is. You know, what is? So my legs were hurting, so I wanted to put them up, and I didn't want to come in the shrine room and put them up because it didn't feel like that was very polite. So I went and I, I was in this little gully way here with my legs up on the, on the retaining wall and my hand holding the guttering over my head <laughs> because there wasn't enough space to put my head down. And then I thought, this is a little bit cramped. <laughs> So I thought, well, you know, maybe I'll go rest. And Elite was still washing dishes. So I thought, maybe it's enough for dishes now. Why don't you go and then lock the door? Because if I lock the door, then people are not going to walk in. Because I relax better when I'm lying down when people aren't walking in, you know? So, you know, it's one of the consequences of having a space that's small where I don't have any private space myself. My space is the cooking space, the communal space, the toilet space. The, you know, it's a communal space. So I don't have a private space myself which has its limitations when you need to rest and, you know, all the rest of that. So I figured, okay, I'll just lock the door, and that was fine, you know. But it's like, all right, so there's these kind of limitations. Do you practice with what's arising, or do you work with the conditions so that you can actually get your needs met? And this is a really important question of how we navigate that, because we're constantly in this position of having to choose. Do I just work with what's arising and observe? Or do I focus on what my needs are and begin to see if I can make choices where they can be met? Now, on some level, it seems like these are two diametrically opposed questions. But really, the place where we need to let them come into a unification is what's going on in my body, my heart, and my mind, and how am I relating to it? And what kind of options do I have around me? You know? So if you've agreed to go on a walk with all of us together, certainly you could bail and just, you know, head for the hills or the trees or whatever and say, no, I'm out of here, I can't handle this. I mean, it's not like that's an impossible option, but it's more awkward. You know, on a day where it's a complete choice day for you to figure out where you feel more inclined to go, then it's easier. So it's partially is contextual, and partially it's how much of the agitation is actually gripping. You know, are you completely disorganized by it, or is it just a little bit of an impingement where it feels like, oh, it doesn't feel very comfortable, but I can work with it. So discernment about what's actually happening is really helpful. So I was sitting under the cotton trees and there was ants crawling me and I was feeling agitated because of the sound of the wood and the motorcycles. And I thought, 
this is not helpful. So I got up and I walked 15 minutes and it was like, ah, oh, this is the place. This is my spot. This is a perfect place, you know. So within that context, I could make small adjustments and do something that was proactive and then feel the consequences, which is that my system was relaxing as a result. Now, we don't just have our physical bodies that we need to take care of. That's part of it. And it's not a small part, especially when you've had chronic health problems for 28 years. (laughs) But we have these hearts. We have these minds. We have these things that get activated. We have this whole kind of like sense of who am I? What am I? What do I need? What do I want? What's the right way of practicing for the whole of me to come into a sense of well-being? You know? And there's times where it's like, I don't know. You know, I don't know. You know, I don't know. I don't know what I need. And that is something that I also need to practice with, the fact that I don't have a clear sense of a way forward. And then there's other times where it's like, I know. You know, it's like, this is what I need to focus on. And so my life has been weaving between, you know, growing as a person so that I know who I am. You know, you can throw a hoop around me and I have a sense of boundaries. I know my limits. I know what's in. I know what's out. I know where I belong. You know, I can regulate a little bit some of the stuff that's coming. So the, the human development of being a person has been learning how to navigate the body and the energies, the moods, the emotions, the conditioning that I've had and finding balance with it has been a significant part of my practice. But that's also been weaving in with learning how to just drop into a place where it's not me, it's not about me, it's about opening up to a field of awareness that is vast and huge. The me arises within that, but it's not the entirety of it. It's not even a subsect of it. It's just an arising within this vast field of awareness. And so when am I practicing on the human, the condition, the realm of where my mind-body system is actually uh, patterned, And when am I leaning into this vast, open, spacious awareness that can hold all of it? And it depends. It depends how gripped I am, and it depends how much access I have to this awareness. Because sometimes when I can just relax into this awareness, if I can relax into this awareness, then it completely puts into perspective this kind of wrestling match with trying to figure out who I am in relationship to the conditions that I have. And then other times, it's like nose to the grindstone. There's a piece of work, there's a piece of something, there's something that I need to wrestle with until there's more clarity with it, and that actually takes a lot of my attention. Now, one of the things that helps both the ability to relax into awareness and the ability to focus on the human, the character development, the growth as a person in this world is the ability to collect, to center, to still, to focus. 
And, you know, we all have stories, we all have the impact of sensations, you know, we all have the busyness of our minds and the need to respond to a complex world around us. And most of us get activated by it. We get busy. We get um, ungrounded. We get full of stories. You know, we're not actually just with one thing at a time, with one thing at a time, with one thing at a time. And so what is needed is to learn how to recognize when we're not grounded, when we're busy, when we're full of stories, when we're not with one thing at a time, and to make choices that begin to allow those things to shift and just to come back to something very simple, the feet on the ground, the breath, the contact of the sound of the birds, the wind on the eyes and the face, the feeling of the cloth on the skin eating one mouthful at a time, just coming back, coming back, coming back, coming back, coming back, coming back to the immediacy of what is present and arising in the body, the heart, the mind, in this moment. And so our ability to recognize our dispersiveness, our ability to recognize the amount of story, of noise, of of proliferation, of the activation of associations of related to a thought or a feeling or a sensation or some kind of an impression. And then choosing not to follow that and choosing to come right back to the underlying experience of contact and sensation that activated it. And so we're sitting under the cotton trees and a butterfly flew by. And I thought, oh, this is so lovely, a butterfly. I want to tell everyone there's a butterfly. Look, 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 there's a butterfly. And it's like, just come back right in and feel that bubble of joy that's a little bit painful to hold because it's a little bit too big. And just be with that. Just feel that, that kind of ache of a bubble of delight that I just want to share with friends. And then when I'm with that little ache of a little bit too much joy, then the the story fades. I come right back in. So our experience of what's actually happening right now and how we're relating to it is the guide for me about whether I'm practicing with what is or I'm proactive to try and move in a direction where I'm feeling more comfortable. There's times when I can just observe what's arising. And there's times where I need to put myself in a place where I feel more comfortable in order to be able to do that. So there have been innumerable times in the last six years when I have run to the rocks. Run! Because for me, that's a place of where I relax. I feel well. I feel comfortable. I feel supported. I feel like it's, everything is a lot clearer for me. 
And then when I'm there for a while, and sometimes it's a short while, sometimes it's a longer while, then whatever it was that had gotten me activated, all of a sudden I've got more perspective around. Or it's maybe not even quite correct to say, I've got more perspective around. Perspective dawns, and I'm the recipient of it. So there's times when it is important to put ourselves in places where we feel really comfortable where we're doing the practice that feels really the practice that we feel at ease with. But life is not always going according to our preferences, in case you hadn't noticed. This might be shocking news. (laughs) And so it is useful to not only be able to practice with things according to our own preferences. You know, to work with it when it's a little bit irritating or agitating or uncomfortable or we don't feel like we've got the space or the privacy or, you know, that something is, you know, it doesn't quite feel right. Not so that we become um, martyrs, but so that we can begin to rub with our sense of it has to be the way I want it to be in order to be practicing. Now, Ajahn Chah was brilliant about that. He was masterful about it. I never lived with him, so I didn't actually get to see him in full regalia manifesting, but I certainly heard from the senior monks who did live with him, you know, some of the mischief that he got into. And he was absolutely relentless about nailing people exactly where it was really the most uncomfortable. In fact, Ajahn Pasano, who spent many years living with him, said that, you know, Ajahn Chah was a a remarkably famous monk, and he had many thousand monk disciples, which is very unusual to have that many. And a vast majority of them found him so irritating they couldn't tolerate living with him (laughs) for more than a week at a time. (laughs) Because he'd rub their nose exactly where they didn't want it rubbed. In fact, you know, he was Thai and he had a lot of Western disciples and one of the, somebody asked him at some point, you know, how do you train your Western disciples? You don't speak their language. He says, it's simple. I torture them. <laughs> so he would get a sense of people's preferences, and then he would rub it. You know, he would send them the opposite. You know, if people were infatuated with him, he'd send them to a distant monastery. If people wanted to live in isolation, he would have them living in a crowd. You know, everything that they wanted, he would do opposite. And I remember one story that still gives me the chuckles, because, you know, we, we did lots of full moon vigils in the monastery, and so I can just get a sense. The Ajahn Chah lineage was renowned for being very serious. These were serious monks. These were not city monks that were just interested in mumbo-jumbo kind of practice. These were serious monks. And so the rule was, this is that on the full moon, they would come and to meditate. But the rule was, is that Ajahn Chah, once you came, you sat, you could not leave until Ajahn Chah dismissed you. 
So you could come, but you couldn't go until he said so, okay? So these are serious monks, and they're doing serious practice, and they're on the full moon vigil, and this is really significant. And one night, they'd all come, and they'd gathered, and they'd sat, and a village person showed up, and Ajahn Chah was sitting in the meditation hall talking digitally squat the whole night. You know, who's pregnant? How many chickens are laying eggs? Who's got goats? Who's, you know, just like gossip for the whole night. And the monks are sitting there, and they are absolutely furious. Furious! Furious! <laughs> and Ajahn Chah's, you know, kind of with a smirk on a smile, was just checking in to see how they're doing, you know? You know, are you with it yet? Are you with the program yet? You're not with the program yet. Another six more hours. <laughs> All night long, he talked with this village person about absolute useless gossip. And eventually, some of them actually figured it out. This is what's happening right now. This is what the practice is, is to be with this in this context and not to expect it to be different. And so, you know, he was, he was masterful and very, very irritating. Now, most of us have enough going on in our own body, hearts, and minds. We don't need somebody rubbing it in our nose. Life is rubbing it in our nose, you know? We don't need somebody to actually activate it for us. Life does that. Our bodies do that. Circumstance does that. You know, it's just like, it's just happening. Mm. But sometimes we can pick up a theme and work with it. And again, we need to be careful that it's coming from the right motivation, not from the motivation to be a martyr or for being, a, you know, a, a jock meditator but to just to start working some of these places that don't developing muscles where we haven't developed them before so sometimes you know when we have had like very little experience being able to name and know what our needs are then actually focusing on what's my preference is actually a very challenging practice but for others who are like, I can't practice unless I feel perfectly fine, then to go to a place where there's a little bit of uncomfort and sit with it is useful practice. So what we practice, how we practice, where we practice depends on what is actually useful for us. So where we're wanting to do is to develop some, some stillness, some collectedness, and then when we have some level of stillness and collectedness where that's beginning to soak in, then we have a, a, a foundation to then make some choices of what we do with that. Where do we work with that? Until we have that, then we just need to keep coming back in. Keep coming back in. Keep coming back in. Move to the place where there's the least amount of dispersion, the least amount of distraction, the least amount of moving out until we have some level of collectedness. When there's that level of collectedness, then we have more choice. Where are we going to direct it? What are we going to focus on? How are we going to use the time?
Now, in my own personal practice, my own personal life, you know, I don't know that my life needs to be anybody else's life or could possibly be anybody else's life. But the way it worked for me was I spent 20 years really absolutely focused on meditation until I realized, you know, there's places in my life that are still a lot of suffering. And then I began finding parallel practices to therapy and energy and medicine and various kinds of ways of addressing some of these things so that I could actually understand what was going on and bring some clarity and insight and healing into these places that were so unsettled for me. But 20 years before I did that. So for me, there was a real clear sense of what the practice was before I started learning parallel practices. And I can see a value in that, you know, because it's easy to not know what the practice is and then just go from this to this to this to this to this to this to this and then be a little bit dispersed. So there isn't clarity about what meditation is and what the practice is. So I can appreciate, you know, when teachers say just stay with one practice and stay with it for a while, that there's a value in doing that. There's also, you know, like, you know, in the monastery, some of the things that happen, you know, you just think, oh my goodness, did we really go through this? We really went through this. But, you know, the basic idea was that the vinya, the monastic discipline, was some kind of thing that was sacrosanct and you shouldn't challenge it. And so really what you should live with this kind of exterior code and not question it or challenge it. And this was for between seven and ten years. So for seven to ten years, you're not supposed to question the container you're in, you're just supposed to follow it and listen to everybody else's understanding and interpretation of what that's supposed to look like in terms of how you're supposed to live it. Well, for seven to ten years, not trust yourself. (laughs) So, the value of doing that is you begin to get a feeling for a container that has been ancient and has used for a very long time and has a lot of mm, integrity in it. The challenge is it, obviously, is, is that if we're not trusting ourselves for seven to ten years, there might be some problems with that. Well, we can't trust our intuition. We can't trust the context that we're in. We can't trust the way in which we need to express ourselves or find our own way within something. And if that also reinforces the fact that trusting ourselves is an issue that's coming from a whole other context, then we're getting an external reinforcement of an internal pattern which is actually creating something which is not wholesome. Now, one of the things that Ajahn Sumedho said to me, which I really feel a lot of gratitude, because, you know, he could see that I didn't fit very well into this box. I remember once after, I can't remember when it was, but there was a period of time when I didn't sing any songs at all because as monastics were not supposed to sing. And then there was something that was happening and I had to sing. So I would go into the chapel of rest after everyone left the evening meditation hall, the temple, And I would just let rip completely, you know, with these songs that I, they were religious songs. 
And there were, I don't know, seven or eight of them, maybe nine. Some of them were the mantra chants that we were doing here. Some of them, one was Amazing Grace. You know, they were religious songs. And I would just, just give everything I had to these songs. And then I remember saying to Ajahn Sumero, you know, I really wanted him to listen because there was something very, there's something very intimate about singing that I wanted him to be, I wanted to share that with him. And so eventually he consented and I went through my whole repertoire and at the end he said, how on earth have you managed to stay in this form? And then I was thinking about going to Australia, and I felt really conflicted because, you know, the nuns forever were under-numbered. You know, we had too much duties and responsibilities on our plate for the numbers of nuns that we were, and there was always the sense of, of, you know, the fragility of our community, and there was a variety of reasons where I needed to, I, I needed to leave that context for a while. I needed to be in a different situation, and I felt terribly conflicted. You know, absolutely conflicted. And Ajahn Sumedho said to me repeatedly, he said, Sister, you're going to have to find your own way. You're going to have to find your own way. Trust yourself. You're going to have to find your own way. What a gift. What an incredible gift. You know, sisters, you're going to have to find your own way. Trust yourself. Some people are going to want to stay in the meditation hall. Some people are going to want to be in the riverbed. Some of you want to be under the cottonwood trees. Some people are going to want to be by the water. Some people are going to need to work with body energies. Some people are going to need to work with their voice. You're going to have to trust yourself. You're going to have to find your own way. So it comes back to this koan again and again and again of follow intuition, but don't follow desire. And so one of the things that we each need to learn is what are the telltale signs of our intuition and how is it that we know when we're experiencing and following desire? What's the difference? Because my experience is, is, is that following my intuition has led me into places that both have terrified me, but has also have been really places where it has opened me. And following desire is usually very short-lived in terms of the satisfaction and the benefit that comes. And sometimes it's actually quite uh, unwholesome. So here we are, you know, in a little vihara in the middle of a city, surrounded by all of this land, 
with people and moms screaming at their kids and motorcycles blasting with music. You know, it's not enough that it's a motorcycle that's got fluorescent red paint on it. You know, they've got to have this stereo system that for 10 square miles you can hear what they want to hear because that's really cool. And mufflers that should really be called amplifiers because they don't muffle, they amplify. You know, this is the world we live in. This is the world we live in. And it's all here. It's not like we're in this nice, cozy, safe space where it's not here. It's all here. And so we have a chance or an opportunity to work with it. in a way where we're moving in the direction of what is wholesome and skillful. And we're not moving in the direction of what is aversive, reactive, unwholesome, and unskillful. And it's been fascinating for me to watch because I'm super sensitive to sound. And sometimes it's just so irritating that the sounds of the highway is right here. You know, and then I go to the Garden of the Gods and I go into some kind of, I don't know what kind of a space, and the sounds don't bother me at all. So what happened? You know, and it can be matters of just minutes between it's like, ah, I can't stand the sound. And it's like, there's no problem. So how we are navigating what's going on internally has a huge impact on the way that we're experiencing the world around us. But the discernment is as to whether or not we need to have a certain kind of support to be able to get to the place where it's not a problem. When it's a problem, to just say as a mantra, it shouldn't be a problem, isn't helpful. Right now, it's a problem. To register, there's irritation, there's resistance, there's a lack of capacity. In that situation, it's really skillful to put myself in a place where my body relaxes, where I can go to the place where there is no problem, rather than say it as an idea, which is some kind of a subtle flagellation that I should be practicing differently because if I was practicing differently then I wouldn't be experiencing this irritation. So there has to be a tracking of what is actually happening and how am I relating to it. And my capacity changes. When my capacity is low, I need more supportive conditions. When I am in those supportive conditions and then I can access these places that that are much bigger and expansive, then all of a sudden my capacity is much greater. But there has to be the honoring of the human. You know, what am I actually experiencing and how am I relating to that? as part of where I make the decisions about how I'm practicing, what choices I make.
So I offer this as a reflection and encourage each of us to continue to stay close to what's going on, to how we're relating to it, and to really make wise choices. There needs to be enough collectedness, enough centeredness, enough stillness to then choose where and how we want to practice. Until we have that, then we just have to keep coming back home in whatever way we know how. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.